morning, morning crosswalk. crosswalk. Yeah, it's good to see you this morning. And I love baby dedications. Got one at 9.30, have one now at, uh, no, what time did we start? Nine, nine o'clock. Man, I've been here since seven. So 9 a.m. service, 10.30 service now. So if anybody has a child they want dedicated at the 12, just see Pastor Karen before she takes off. So, uh, you know, Pastor Karen does a tremendous job, awesome job with our children's ministries and her volunteers are fantastic. And so I'm really excited that we got a chance to highlight that. So anyway, enough about that. Uh, welcome. Glad that you're here. Thanks for coming today. Uh, also, welcome to our online audience. Always good to have you on board as we continue this series. This is week four of our after series where we're addressing the question, what happens after the resurrection? And maybe really the question is, why is that question important, right? Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim uh, talked about the resurrection and uh, we led up through it through a communion service which commemorates the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, and then culminated it on Sunday with baptisms and a message about the resurrection and what it means to us. But what happens after that? And that's why we're doing these three weeks after. Last week, Pastor Sam uh, Leonor preached, and next week, Pastor Tim will be back, and he'll be talking about uh, the end of the 40 days after the resurrection, the ascension. Uh, but Pastor Sam, last week, if you were here, you know that he preached on John chapter 21, which had to do with the miraculous catch of fish and, and uh, what I like to call the last breakfast, right? I think I'm going to push next year. Instead of having, right, the, uh, the, the Last Supper, the communion that we typically do, I think Sunday mornings we ought to have a charcoal fire, be grilling some fish, fresh, fresh uh, you know, freshly made bread. And I don't even like fish, but I think it'd be cool to, to, to have it anyway. So, but I'm not hearing a lot of love for that, so uh, you're not going to help my argument. So anyway, uh, Pastor, Pastor Sam talked about uh, all those things, including and more importantly, the reinstatement of Peter, right? When Jesus asked them, hey, do you love me more than these? He's talking about the fish that Jesus had on the grill, so to speak, out over the fire. Do you love me more than these? In other words, he was referring back to the reality that the disciples had gone off mission, you know, that they had lost hope, that they had gone back to their old profession, which was the profession of fishing for fish. And if you might know and remember that Jesus had called them to become fishers of men, but they'd gotten discouraged and had gone back. They had gone all the way and run away, actually, all the way back to the Sea of Galilee, which is 80 miles away from Jerusalem, where all the events of the crucifixion and obviously res uh, resurrection occurred. And it reminds me of an Old Testament story of Jonah. Some of you may remember the story of Jonah. God gave uh, Jonah a message to give to the people of Nineveh. What does Jonah do? He figuratively and literally and spiritually turns his back on God and says, I'm actually headed in the other direction. Complete opposite, turning back and going to Tarshish, and yet God continues to pursue him. And it's the same thing here in this story. Jesus finds the disciples because he wants to restore them. I want to just remind us that this is not the only time that Jesus takes the initiative to restore. Now, some of you may have experienced this already. I'm going to guess most in some form or another have experienced kind of the restorative power of God in our lives, how he's changed and begun a process of transformation. And if you're early on that journey, 
you've begun to experience that. If you're down the road, my hope that that is that that gets refreshed on a regular basis, right? Because once we've been pursuing God for a while, it's easy to, to get distracted and, and to not be as excited about it. But God continues to pursue us. And really, that's the focus uh, for us today. I want to focus on the 40 days that Jesus spent on the earth after the resurrection. 40 days. People saw him alive. They, they, they interacted with him. It was all about proving, yes, one, that Jesus was resurrection, was resurrected, but it was really more than that. I really want to suggest that the appearances of Jesus are not just physical events that take place, but they're spiritual events. So I want you to notice that as we begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, during the 40 days, the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles. I want you to notice three things here in this text. He appeared to the apostles from time to time. So it wasn't just a one-time deal. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't like, hey, was that Jesus over there? No, he appeared to them on a regular basis so that he could prove, it says in the next text, that in many ways, not just by appearing, but by his actions. In fact, John chapter 20 tells us that he performed miraculous signs, that he was actually alive. He was trying to prove that he was actually alive. But it was more than that. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. They had an idea of what the kingdom of God was supposed to look like, and it meant release from Roman oppression. It meant kind of being an uprising uh, that would put them above the Romans. And when Jesus was crucified and buried, they were like, ah, uh, I guess that wasn't it. Uh, what do we do now? Uh, let's take our ball and go home. Let's, let's just, I guess that's it. And so things changed when all of a sudden Jesus appeared back and he was alive after three days in the tomb. It was like, oh, game changer. Now maybe they would understand what the kingdom of God was actually supposed to, to be. So these are kind of three things. And now why the 40 days? You know, that's, that's uh, I think, also an important question. Why 40 days? Well, 40 is a number of significance. It's a number of significance, uh, significance in the Jewish culture. And, I, and really for us today, right? When, when we turn 40, it's a big deal in our culture. You know, when I turned 40 just a couple years ago, <laughs> at least in my mind, right, uh, my wife threw me a, a party, right, because at 40 is important. It's kind of that apex point. They say after 40, you start going downhill. Nah, don't, don't believe it, right? And, uh, and she threw me a party. Uh, she called it a death party. Yeah, it was a death party. She had grim reapers all over the front lawn. She had hung dra black drapes all over the house, invited friends all dressed in black. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> 40 is a significant number in our lives, and it was a significant number in the life of the Hebrew nation. Moses, right, he had remained on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Elijah had fasted for 40 days. The rains from the flood in Noah's day had lasted 40 days. The Israelites, when they were ready to conquer the land of Canaan, sent in spies. And those spies 
checked out the land for 40 days. God gave the people of Nineveh 40 days to repent. I just referred kind of to that just a few minutes ago. 40 days to repent. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And now he stays on earth after the resurrection for 40 days. So 40 is a significant number uh, in that culture. And that's why it's used so many times in scripture, 146 times this reference. It also, by the way, was an average lifespan during that time. Hard to believe that that was an average lifespan. He lived about 40 years in that time. And so this represents, though, in most places in Scripture, represents testing. It it, it represents proving. So one, it's the opportunity during these 40 days uh, for Jesus to prove that he's a resurrected human being. Yeah, uh, that's important, right? That he's not a ghost, that he's not an apparition, that he's not a delusion, that he's not a figment of our imagination or their imagination, but that he's a real person. So Jesus, yes, he wants to remove all doubt that he's alive. Yeah, he's alive. Uh, And that's why he appears during these 40 days to all kinds of people, to Mary Magdalene, to a group of women, to the 12 disciples, to Peter, to Thomas, to uh, two unnamed disciples, Uh, and more than 500 followers at the same time. And even though he did all this, uh, there were many people in that day who were skeptical, many people who did not believe, who doubted the reality of the resurrection. I mean, have you ever had that conversation with someone? Or maybe in your own head, right? I mean, is it possible? Is that true? I know that when I've had that conversation with people who have not chosen to pursue life with God, they're like, come on, come on. Resurrected from the dead, that just doesn't happen. And yet, it's the struggle of the Christian faith, right? Because there's a fine line between skepticism and belief. There's this fine line between faith and doubt. You know, of all the religions in the world, only four are based on a person. Judaism, Moses. Christianity, Jesus. Buddhism, Buddha, and Islam, Muhammad. Of all the other religions, and specifically of these four, only who are based on a person, only one makes the claim of the resurrection. Christianity is unique. Nobody else claims that there was a resurrection and that God died and was resurrected, came back to life. So it's not a surprise that many people are disturbed by this idea. Right? And maybe you've had these interactions with people who mock or ridicule those who believe. Come on, you can't, Christian, come on, you don't believe in that. Because it's all centered on the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't occur, then we're really wasting our time. So that's the question that Jesus came to answer. But what do you do with the fact that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people, that many people saw Jesus? People, a lot of people choose to set that to the side in spite of the evidence, in spite of the eyewitnesses' account that are going on, that were going on. Many, even in that day, and of course today, choose not to believe. Uh, so uh, today, I want to look again at a couple of the stories that are in John chapter 20 as we begin to understand what it was that Jesus was trying to accomplish during those 40 days that he came to test, to prove, and to accomplish something in particular. It says, early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. 
Here comes a character that is often misunderstood, but it's important because it's the first character to actually interact with Jesus after the resurrection. It's the first person, Mary from Magdala, Mary Magdalene. Now, the Bible tells us a few things about her. It says that she had had seven demons cast out of her. And there's a lot of people out there who are like, well, you know, does that mean like seven? Uh, you know, what did that look like? Or does that, you know, a lot of scholars say, well, that represents seven vices. And, and so it was that, you know, she, she was active in, in these activities that were against God. The important thing, I think, for us is that the number seven is another important number because it signifies completeness. Uh, the reality was that she was living in complete opposition to God. And it often happens in people's lives, right? We're either facing God or we either have our back turned towards God or hopefully we're somewhere in between sometimes, right? And she's living in complete opposition and, and people uh, kind of blame her for that and often refer to her in some very unkind terms. Uh, a lot of people say, well, she was a prostitute. Uh, and maybe you've heard preachers preach this, but there's no actually biblical evidence that she was a prostitute. It doesn't appear at all in Scripture. Mary was from Magdala. And the, so the reason that this is attached is because Magdala was one of those towns, if you know what I mean, that had a reputation. What happens in Magdala, right? One of those places. And uh, we find in the Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary of the Hebrew Scriptures, that Magdala was a town that was known for prostitution, that was known for a variety of vices. And because she was from there, she was labeled as a prostitute, although it doesn't appear in any documents until 591 A.D., more than 500 years after this. So the likelihood is she wasn't. In fact, this is what we know about her that's important for us, uh, that Mary was a person of means. She and other women supported Jesus' ministry out of their resources. So she's apparently wealthy. And this wealthy woman, it's a whole different picture when it's not someone of bad reputation, but someone of good reputation. Uh, Mary of Magdala gets to the tomb and the body is gone. We've, we've seen this part of the story. She runs to Peter and John. They've taken away my Lord, she says. The assumption that I want you to note here is that it's a grave robber. If it would have been a resurrection, if they had understood truly that Jesus was going to be resurrection, she would have got there and said, yes, it happened. But no, she says, someone has taken away my Lord. The assumption is a grave robber, not a resurrection. The resurrection never actually enters her mind or the disciples' minds. And I guess why would it, right? She saw Jesus crucified. She saw Jesus put in the tomb. So I'm pretty sure that when you go to a funeral, your first thought is not a resurrection, right? That'd be a little strange. Might be great, might not. Right? We don't know, but what we do know is we don't expect that. And so it's not a surprise that no one assumed the resurrection. No one assumed that he had come to life. They assumed that someone had stolen the body. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running, and <laughs> the other disciple, who happens to be John, who also refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, which is kind of interesting, right? Eh, Jesus likes me more than you, and I'm faster than you. Eh. You know, 
It's a little strange, but there's reasons for that. And one of the reasons why this is included is because John wanted to communicate that even though he reached the tomb first, which everybody would have anticipated because he was probably a younger man, uh, probably under 40, and, and, and John, John did not go into the tomb unaccompanied. That was what he was trying to get across. Yeah, I arrived first, but I didn't go in. I didn't disturb anything so that there was another witness to what they were about to see was actually accurate. And this is what he says next. He says, he, John, he's talking about himself, stooped in and he looked in and he saw linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. I want to focus on the word saw because it's the word blepo, which means to notice. John stooped and he noticed something, and what he noticed was linen wrappings on the ground, but he came to no other conclusion. Then Simon Peter goes in, and Simon Peter arrives inside and, uh, and, uh, arrives and goes inside, and here's the word again. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. But the word saw is not the same word that was used in a verse before, blepo. It's the word thorio. And this word means, we actually get the word theater from it. So it means observing from a distance. The implication is that Peter runs in, but he does not come to a conclusion. He sees it, ah, but boom, doesn't take notice. He's too busy with what else is going on, with other things on his mind, that he doesn't come to a conclusion. A couple verses later, it says the disciple who reached the tomb first, that's John again talking about himself, also went and he saw, but notice this, he saw and believed. And that word for saw is a different Greek word for saw than the first two. It's the word sidon, which means to see with comprehension, to see with understanding. It says John saw and believed. What did he believe? That Jesus was actually not stolen, but raised from the dead. And so what, what, what these reactions tell us is oftentimes where we find ourselves in our journey with God, in our journey whether we see or truly recognize God, because oftentimes we may be journeying with him like the disciples were for many years and yet not fully understanding what he's all about and what his message was, right? Sometimes, like John, at first we see, but we don't connect the dots, right? We experience God. We come and we listen and we worship and, and we have an idea, but we really haven't connected the dots as to what it means for our lives and what kind of transformation power that may have on us. The second is like Peter, right? Peter came in. He had no conclusion, it's not that he wasn't interested. It was too much going on. He had too much on his mind. He was too busy. Life, life was happening. And there's just no time to really focus on what's important. So he, he saw, but he didn't see what was going on. He couldn't come to a conclusion. He couldn't make a decision because he really wasn't paying attention. He was experiencing the moment, but not understanding the moment. And then John comes back and uses another word. And he sees and he believes. Now, why? Why does it change from the first time to the second time? What makes him believe? Well, here's what it says. While the cloth had been co that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. So the burial cloth was neatly folded. If someone had stolen the body, they probably were not going to stop and say, you know, I'm going I'm to fold this neatly and uh, leave it nice, nice and, and tidy here. 
Now, I know there's probably a parent here who's hearing this and is going to use this on their kids, right? Even Jesus folded his own clothes after the resurrection. You can fold your clothes too, right? So Peter, Peter sees the, uh, the empty tomb and he doesn't get it. He wonders what happened. He does not think resurrection, but John believes, but he says nothing. He says nothing. And sometimes that's a whole other category. We may see, we may understand, but we kind of keep it to ourselves, right? Keep it to ourselves. So uh, the disciples go back to their home, but Mary stays. She sticks around. She stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she went back to the tomb and she sees two angels and then turns around and she sees Jesus. Why? Because she stayed. She st- stuck around. She decided she wasn't going to give in yet. She wasn't going to quit. She was going to pursue in spite of the disappointment that she had experienced over that weekend. And she is rewarded by being the first person to see Jesus. Now, fast forward. We're on the road to Emmaus now. This is a story later in the chapter 20 of John. Uh, this is on resurrection evening now. This has happened in the morning. Now we're in the evening, and two of Jesus' followers are walking home to Emmaus. Emmaus was a town that was seven miles away from Jerusalem, so it's probably a couple-hour walk because if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that it's in the hills, and so it's not kind of a straight shot. You've got to meander and wander up and over hills. And so it takes them a couple of hours, so there's plenty of time for Jesus to be able to join them. And of course, some of you know the story. They join him, but they don't actually, Jesus joins them, but they don't actually see him. Again, that word uh, it's, is used. They don't actually recognize him. I want to suggest that the road to Emmaus is both a literal journey and a spiritual journey. It symbolizes the journey that we all take from not recognizing Jesus to recognizing him, to actually seeing him for who he is, and then finally giving witness to others about what we've experienced. It's a journey that we're on, and they're on this journey, the road to Emmaus. These disciples knew who Jesus was. They should have been expecting a resurrection. They should have been looking around. They should have been participating. They should have been communicating the good news, but instead, they were doubting. They were sad. They were walking back to Emmaus and did not recognize him. Maybe because things did not occur just like they thought they would. And that sometimes happens, right, in our lives as Christ followers. If we've decided to pursue God, sometimes life doesn't work out exactly like we think, right? And, and so that gets discouraging. Um, sometimes we have the preconceived idea of who Jesus is in this case, who Jesus was, what he had come to do, and how he should do it. And when it didn't happen that way, when they didn't overthrow the Roman government, when they didn't become the rulers instead of the ruled, they were disappointed. They were discouraged. Things did not turn out as they thought that they would. And so what did they do? They gave up. They walked away. You know, I want to suggest that Jesus wants to open our eyes. He wants us to see. I think that the 40 days after the resurrection was about getting his followers to really understand what he'd been saying for three years and they could not understand. They could not get in their heads. 
So they're walking on this road to Emmaus, and you can read the account in, in John, uh, in Luke chapter 24, and, and there uh, you begin to, to get a picture of what Jesus is trying to accomplish during this, because he feigns like not knowing what's going on, and they're like, haven't you heard? And then Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24, he said to them, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but how foolish you are. How slow to believe. I've been talking to you about this. You've been in my presence all this time. You've been listening. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then go enter into his glory? Uh, I, don't, I don't understand why you don't get it. And then it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, this is their Bible, what we call the Older Testament or the Old Testament now, Moses or the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then the uh, rest of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. He explained to them, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So he began to lay it out again because they would understand once they truly saw him. So he laid out scripture there. And what happens? They sit down at a meal and they recognize him. Right away he disappears. Now when, we, when, when, when he disappears, right away they get up and they head back to Jerusalem. It says they got up, returned to Jerusalem at once where they found the 11 and those with them. People had begun to assemble, to gather together because we're going to jump to what's happening as they're trying to get back to Jerusalem. In those two hour, that two hour walk run, my guess is now, that they're trying to get back to tell the disciples that Jesus has appeared to them, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus. And so they head there, and this is what's happening now back in Jerusalem. That Sunday evening, same time, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, they're in the locked uh, room. Jesus is standing among them. Talk about being startled. There, there's Jesus, and it's no surprise that Jesus says, peace be with you, <laughs> right? Imagine you're hiding, you're afraid for your life, all of a sudden you're startled by someone who looks like Jesus. You've never experienced a resurrection, you've never experienced an apparition of this sort, right? Uh, him coming back, and so Jesus says, peace, don't be afraid, because they're scared, they're nervous, they're anxious. Their leader has just been crucified. They think they're next. So it's no surprise that they are hiding. They're afraid. Begs the question, is, what is it that you're afraid of? Because sometimes we get afraid too. We get afraid of what others might think or what others might say if they know that we're doing our best to fully pursue life with God, to fully surrender. And sometimes we're afraid that that'll get out. And so we keep it to ourselves, like John did. We remain silent. We're like, yeah, I see, I believe, but let me keep it to myself because I'm just not sure I want to communicate that because it may cause some discomfort in my life. What's holding you back from living the life God is calling you to live? Well, this is kind of what's going on there. And it says next that as he spoke, he showed him his wounds on his hands and his side, and all of a sudden they realized who he was. They were filled with joy, it says, when they saw the Lord. Man, they're excited. And when all that calms down, in verse 21, Jesus says again, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, why would he repeat peace be with you again? He just proved who he was, showed him hands and feet, 
They're not scared anymore. They know they got Jesus with, with them. See, the second time is for another reason. The New Testament is written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic, spoke Hebrew. So the word that he would have chosen or used is the word shalom. Shalom is a rich and nuanced word. It means peace. Even today, the Jews use it as a greeting. Shalom Aleichem. Peace be unto you. So yes, it means peace. It means tranquility. It means everything's okay, but it means much, much more. See, shalom uh, also means wholeness. Shalom also means completeness. So when he says peace, be with you the second time, I believe he's addressing what they're thinking, which is their biggest fear, because the last time they saw him, they were running away. They were headed in the opposite direction. They were scared. They had rejected him. And they didn't think that once they rejected God, that once they'd walked away from God, they didn't think that they could come back. God's not going to accept them. I just rejected them. I just walked away. And I know, I can, I, I, I just know that afterwards they were ashamed I know that they were embarrassed, that they were frustrated, they were sad. And so Jesus says, Shalom, I'm here to restore you. You are mine. I am here to speak wholeness into your life in spite of what you did, in spite of what you've done. See, no matter what, whether we've disappointed God, whether we've rejected God, whether we've walked away from God, whether we've hid from God, Jesus says, Shalom. Peace be unto you. You can come to me. I will accept you. I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will make you whole. Just come to me. Then he says one more thing. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He says, there's another part once you understand what I'm offering you and you bring, come back to full restoration. See, we are trained to be sent, not to sit. The message Jesus has for his disciples is training time's over. It's time. It's time to go and change the world with the message of the gospel, the message of hope and faith and love. The way we like to say it is to love well. We got to communicate that as loudly as we can. It's not about being right. It's not about doctrine. It's not about days. It's about the quality of love that people can experience and feel by being in the presence of God through you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Yeah, the disciples, like us, we have to wrestle sometimes with our failures. But then we enter into a process of change, of transformation. Let me, let me just say this. Transformation does not happen if it's driven by guilt. We cannot change, we cannot be transformed by God if we're driven by fear or worry. It only happens when we're motivated by love. Back to the road to Emmaus for just a second here as we close. I want to suggest that we're either on the road to Emmaus or we're on the road from Emmaus. See, the road to Emmaus is filled with doubts. It's filled with questions. It's filled with wondering. I'm not sure what happened back there in Jerusalem. I'm not sure what's happening. I'm not sure I, I can make sense of it all. But it's during that journey to Emmaus that we have a chance to walk with Jesus. It's the time that we get the chance to actually recognize Jesus. 
to see Jesus, to experience him. And it's only then that you can be on the road from Emmaus, on the road headed to Jerusalem, where you can proclaim with others, the Lord is risen. The resurrection is real, it's true. The reason that I am a Christ follower is because I am convinced and convicted that he is alive and he has chosen to embrace me no matter where I've been and what I've done. He offers full restoration. So what does this mean for us today? Of this I'm sure, there's no place that we can go where Jesus will not find us. Jesus meets us on the road to Emmaus and he walks with us, he talks with us, he reassures us, he helps us make sense of the things that maybe are confusing in our lives and he opens our eyes if we'll stick with him long enough. The beauty is he doesn't leave us there. He gently guides us back on the road from Emmaus, back to our community of faith, back to where we can find renewed hope and acceptance. See, that's why everybody needs a road to Emmaus and everybody needs a road from Emmaus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your patience with us. You seek us out no matter where we've been or what we've done. Even if we've run away as far as the outer reaches of the known world, whether it be the Sea of Galilee, whether it be Tarshish, whether it just be symbolically getting as far away from you as we possibly can, and yet you seek us out wanting us to return, wanting to walk with us as we walk to Emmaus. Lord, may we be open to that so that our eyes can be opened and we can see you for who you are. Thank you for loving us and accepting us. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing again.